Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. How much do you really know about the Vikings? An exhibit has opened at Mystic Seaport Museum that features actual Norse artifacts on loan from Sweden. Coming up, Marika Hedden, director of the Uppsala University Museum, will join us with more about the Vikings Begin exhibit and why it has made its international debut here in Connecticut. First, who was the first European to reach the Americas? In school, we learned about Italian explorer Christopher Columbus, yet the Vikings traveled to the continent even earlier. How do we know? We have archaeologists to thank. More about what they found exactly is coming up. But there was also a map uncovered by Yale University in the 20th century that pointed to the Vikings as well. And now an exhibit at Mystic Seaport is diving into the controversy surrounding it. Producer Kermit Baskoff and I traveled down to Mystic, Connecticut to find out more. Nicholas Bell walked us through the exhibit. He's Senior Vice President for Curatorial Affairs at Mystic Seaport Museum. We asked Nicholas why Mystic decided to highlight the history of this contentious map. This came to be because uh, we had the Viking exhibition coming to the museum from Sweden, and we thought, in addition to showing people real Viking artifacts from Scandinavia, wouldn't it be exciting to tell a story about the connections between American culture and history and Scandinavian culture and history? Because we all know that there is a lot of interest in this country around Vikings, whether or not we're connected to them, uh, who might have come to this continent first, and so forth. And so we looked for that bridge between our cultures. And the most obvious bridge there is just happens to be down the road in New Haven at the Beinecke Library at Yale University, and that's the Vinland map. At the front of the exhibit, we're greeted by a date in large letters, Monday, October 11, 1965. I asked Nicholas to explain what happened on that day. That day, people in this country and around the world picking up their newspapers would have been stunned to read articles about the Vinland map and learn about that map for the first time. What they would have read was that Yale was publishing a map that purported to show uh, Viking knowledge of the New World, and not only that uh, explorers like Leif Erikson had traveled to the east coast of North America around the year 1000, but also that people in mainland Europe hundreds of years later were aware of that travel decades before Columbus sailed. And so what scholars at Yale University were saying was, we have a map that seems to show uh, that this travel happened, people are aware of it, and the real exciting part of this and what got people all in a tizzy on October 11th, 1965, was that it would just happen to be the day before Columbus Day. It's a great marketing move, but I think they got a little bit more response than they anticipated. I think it's important to acknowledge that in the 1960s, the the question of who reached North America first from Europe was not necessarily an open debate. When you went to school, you were taught that Christopher Columbus was first. This was true for the vast majority of people living in this country. The few people who might have questioned whether or not Columbus was here first would be Americans with Scandinavian heritage who were familiar with the medieval Norse sagas, oral histories that told of people like Leif Erikson exploring the New World around the year 1000. But that was an extreme minority in this country. And so it wasn't necessarily an open debate about who got here first. By choosing this date, Yale 
guaranteed maximum public interest and found a way to reach the broadest possible audience to have people start to question, well, did this in fact happen? Was there an, another European culture that arrived here before Columbus came in 1492? And I, at the same time, I don't think that they estimated the scale of the response that they would get. And of course, the most vehement response came from the Italian-American community. A collection of newspaper articles from the following day show just how big that public response was. I asked Nicholas to read a few of the headlines. Yale faces Italian vendetta. Columbus Day begins on a sour note. 80,000 in Fifth Avenue Parade vouch for Columbus. Did Erickson do it? Battle rages on. And how about this one? Record 1,300 people jammed the Beinecke Library. The very day after this announcement is released, the Vinland map is put on public view for the first time, and people are clamoring to see it. They're beating down the doors of an academic library. That doesn't happen every day. Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. So we wanted to have the opportunity to really bring people back in time for the exhibition to work as a sort of time machine taking you back to 1965. So as you walk in the front door, you find yourself in this October 1965 living room with, uh, well, there is a lava lamp, there's coffee table, there's magazines from that week in 1965. There's a rotary phone, by the way, which I don't think my kids know what that is. We have to mention the green carpet. Oh, absolutely, shag. We also have a souvenir cabinet showing Columbus souvenirs, but also Viking souvenirs, because depending on your family heritage, these might be things that you had in your home. So we're seeing, for example, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. We have a Columbus figurine, but we also have a Viking horn, a Viking ship, even a Viking nutcracker. These are things that people grew up with, and that would heavily influence what kind of response you might have to the news of the Vinland map. We have this TV right in the center of the living room that plays the news from that day. We are going to call a world conference of historians, and we're going to put an end to this once for all. And so you see Little Italy, for example, man-on-the-street interviews with people walking down the street in Lower Manhattan. I disbelieve that Columbus discovered America because I have read many books of previous discoverers. For, uh, one was, Ver Ver well, I can't pronounce his name. I personally don't care who discovered America as long as it's been discovered and have the opportunity to live in this wonderful country. And of course my favorite. They just don't want to give the Italians the uh, name that they got it. The Italian people have it all over them. I don't care what Vikings or anybody else. The Italians discovered America. When I started to look into this history, I was really curious. Why is it that people got so upset? Uh, why were, were specific communities so personally invested in the history of Columbus and the idea of Columbus that they took this as a, as a direct affront, not just different factual information? Coming from a, a younger generation, one question I really wanted to answer for myself was why did Italian-Americans get so upset at the idea that somebody might have come to this country from Europe before Columbus? Why is that? Why did it become personal? for them. And one thing I was surprised to learn was that in 1965, there were only three federal holidays that related to individuals in our history, Washington, Lincoln, 
and Columbus. And what Columbus stood for in the Italian-American community was a pathway to legitimacy in the great American experiment because this community, this culture, was not fully embraced uh, at this time. And so Columbus, for them, was their ticket in the door to say, we were here first. We have always been a part of the American experiment. This is where we live. You're hearing Nicholas Bell, Senior Vice President for Curatorial Affairs at Mystic Seaport Museum, as he takes us on a tour of the Vinland Map exhibit. Throughout the exhibit, we hear music from the 60s looped with audio of people responding to the news of the Vinland Map as proof the Vikings arrived to the Americas decades earlier than Christopher Columbus, a hero to Italian-Americans. On the walls, we see historical photos and newspaper clippings. Nicholas pointed out one photo in particular, a photo that was on the front page of the newspaper on October 12, 1966, the first anniversary of the discovery of the Vinland map. And on that day, Yale University Law School students chose to march for Columbus against the Beinecke Library. And one of those students ran into the library and then came out with the Vinland map in effigy and set it on fire. And that student is none other than Joe Lieberman. The same Joe Lieberman who would become Connecticut's U.S. Senator. So confronting Joe Lieberman on the steps of the Beinecke Library in 1966 is a Yale Law School student of Norwegian descent holding a little Norwegian flag shouting, Thor will strike you dead. I mean, the emotions of this period are unbelievable. We're walking into an area of the exhibition that describes to you how the map came to Yale uh, in the late 1950s and also the reasons that they believe the map to be real. So the reason that the map is in Connecticut is that in 1957, a New Haven book dealer named Lawrence Witten was traveling through Europe looking for manuscripts to buy and sell on the American market. Uh, This was still only about 12 years after World War II had ended. There was still a lot of historical material on the open market. Often that material was without a provenance. You didn't necessarily know where it came from. Uh, And so he uh, traveled and in Switzerland met with uh, another dealer, uh, an Italian man named uh, Enzo Ferrioli, who happened to have a medieval book for sale. And when you opened this book, you found a very short text, only about 12 pages, uh, describing two monks walking from uh, around Germany and Switzerland all the way to Eastern Asia into Mongolia to meet uh, with an empire there, and then walking back after they delivered a letter from the Pope. Uh, And then at the back of this book, he found two pages showing the Vinland map. And as he looked at this map, he realized its, its interest and its potential explosive impact on our understanding of history in this part of the world, because in the far northwest corner of this map of the world, you could see this strange island that had a title that said Vinlanda Insula, Vinland, and it had a a legend that described uh, Norse explorers around the year 1000 traveling to meet this place. And so that's present-day Newfoundland? That's exactly correct. And so uh, Witten brings this map back to New Haven, He shows it to colleagues of his at Yale University, just across the street from his shop. And so it just so happens that there is another book at Yale that was recently purchased on the market in the late 1950s. It also appeared to date from the early 15th century. And in looking at these two books together, Lawrence Witten makes a discovery. He says the wormholes through the two books line up. That means that at some point they were together in the same binding 
and these larvae that look to eat wood uh, burrowed through the parchment pages, that is the animal skin pages, looking to get to the wood binding. And at some point later, they were separated. And so he takes this evidence and he says, this for me confirms that these are historical documents, they are authentic documents, and this map of the world is really what it purports to be. Once Yale looked at the physical evidence, they believed the map was authentic, so they decided they needed it for their collections. And so Yale is very interested, of course, as you can imagine, in acquiring this map, but they can't quite afford it. Its price tag has gone up considerably since Mr. Witten bought it in Switzerland. The curator of maps at Yale University Libraries, Alexander Vitor, reaches out to Yale's, one of Yale's greatest benefactors, Paul Mellon, and says, would you consider buying these books and maps? And Paul Mellon does buy them and says, I will give them to Yale when they are authenticated. And so a small team of scholars from Yale University and the British Museum in London team up and for several years painstakingly try to put together the background for these documents and to understand where they came from. And they satisfy themselves that these are authentic and they get ready to tell the world about them. And that leads us up to Monday, October 11th, 1965, and this major announcement, which is kept so closely a secret that people who are invited to the unveiling, a black tie event in New Haven, are only told it's an important occasion. They're not even told what they're going to attend. So what were the Yale scholars seeing on this parchment document that made them believe this was truly a 15th century map? The map has an overall medieval appearance. You can see the entire Mediterranean Sea here. You can see Asia, Europe, North Africa and then the Atlantic Ocean with these islands, including Great Britain and Iceland and Greenland and the mysterious Finland. And the scholars who were looking at this map in the 1950s felt that overall it fit into their understanding of medieval cartography. But there were other clues to the map that made them feel that it was authentic. For example, on the back of the map, you see a very brief sentence that includes the word speckly. That's an abbreviation of the word speculum. It's Latin for mirror. And the reason that that's noteworthy is that the big fat book that is associated with this map is called the Speculum Historiale. And so right there, that gave them a big clue that this map must have been associated with this genuine early 15th century book. There are other reasons that are detailed here that gave the team real confidence that they were dealing here with an authentic map. And you'll see on the wall this quote. It says... We believe this has created a presumption of authenticity so strong as to be difficult, if not impossible, to challenge. That's a pretty bold statement. Where we live is on the road at Mystic Seaport. As we get a tour of the Vinland map exhibit at Mystic Seaport, we're learning why the map was controversial. Is it truly another piece of evidence that confirms the Vikings came to the Americas before Columbus? Here's Mystic Seaport's Senior Vice President for Curatorial Affairs, Nicholas Bell. Right now, we're taking a bit of a tangent. And what is almost unbelievable a coincidence is that at the very same time these scholars at Yale are secretly, very quietly studying this map to try and understand what they have on their hands. There is another team of Norwegian archaeologists and explorers who are boating up and down the northern Canadian coast looking for material evidence, physical evidence, that Viking explorers in fact reached the New World. Because to this point, the sagas, those oral histories, were the only evidence that we had And yet in 1960, some new evidence is discovered. 
And Helga Ingstad, this great Norwegian explorer, and his wife, Anastina Ingstad, come by boat to the northern tip of Newfoundland in a little launch, and they land at a little fishing village called Lanso Meadows, a place of only a few dozen families who are living virtually at the end of the world. There are no roads, there are no scheduled boats. You have to really want to get to Lanso Meadows. And as they get there, they ask around and they say, hey, is there anything here that we should be looking at? We're looking for any ruins of any kind that you could help us discover. And there happens to be a man they meet in this small village called George Decker. George Decker says, well, actually, there are some bumps on my land. You might want to come look at these. And they get off and they look at these and they realize that what the locals had always presumed was some form of indigenous encampment from centuries past was not that at all. What they were looking at was the remains of turf-built houses, just the bottom parts of those walls still evident on the landscape. And as they began to explore those, they discovered all of the markers of medieval Norse architecture that you would expect to find in Iceland or Greenland around the year 1000. The Vinland Map Exhibit team built a scale model of a Viking encampment based on more than 50 years of archaeology, along with replicas of the artifacts that provided key evidence. I asked Nicholas to describe what we're seeing. Archaeologists working with the Ingstads and then later with Parks Canada discovered things in the soil that could not have been created by any other culture. For example, here we see a replica of a soapstone spindle whorl, which is just a small, looks like a little donut. Uh, and it was something that was dug out of the ground, and it doesn't look like much, but what we know is that this was a component of medieval Norse spinning of wool. At the same time here, we have a replica of this bronze pin that was excavated from the soil, and that is something that would have been so valuable to a, a, a Norseman at the time for closing his cloak. He never would have left it behind voluntarily. That must have been something that was lost. These are signs of an, of an iron culture, which is what the Norse were at that time, uh, and in addition to the buildings for living at Lanso Meadows, uh, we know from the evidence that there were three separate buildings for different trades. For example, there was a building specifically devo devoted to carpentry, uh, one to ironsmithing, and one to boat building. What we know today is that they found what is still the only archaeological evidence that the Norse, in fact, reached the New World around the year 1000. What is interesting about Lanso Meadows is that there are no graves. No, no bodies have ever been discovered. Uh, the archaeologists who have spent decades working on this believe that between 60 and 90 individuals lived at the site at any one time, and for about 10 years. They seem to have left the site in an orderly fashion. There's no physical evidence of warfare or violence. Essentially, uh, they packed up and left. The response was relatively muted. They announced this to the world in 1964 through National Geographic, which was the way a lot of Americans at the time got this kind of information. But the response had nothing like the impact that the Vinland map would have one year later. And so one of the things that we're interested in here at the museum is the ways in which we as a nation react to different forms of evidence, whether that be oral evidence, like the sagas, whether that be archaeological evidence, like uh, let's say, slag iron that you would dig out of a bog in northern Newfoundland, somehow that just doesn't seem quite as exciting to people as a map. A map is something that's so accessible. 
as soon as you look at it, you have a sense of what you're looking for. And so to come out to the public and say, see here, here's a depiction of North America on this map, resonated with people to a far higher degree than other forms of evidence that were, that were available at that time. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Nicholas Bell, Senior Vice President for Curatorial Affairs at Mystic Seaport, is giving us a tour of the Vinland Map exhibit. Coming up, we'll find out how the debate around the authenticity of the Vinland Map continued and how historians weighed the evidence. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. You're listening to Where We Live as we take the show on the road to Mystic Seaport, the site of two amazing new exhibits. Coming up, we'll hear about the exhibit Vikings Begin on loan from Uppsala University Museum in Sweden. Now, we've been spending time learning about another exhibit at Mystic Seaport, all about the Vinland map, purported to show Vikings arrived to the Americas decades earlier than Christopher Columbus. While scholars at Yale University were satisfied the Vinland map was authentic, not all researchers were convinced. I asked Mystic Seaport's Senior Vice President for Curatorial Affairs, Nicholas Bell, to explain the historical and scientific debate that ensued after the Beinecke Library unveiled the document to the public. Many people who hear this news in 1965 take it at face value. There are other people who don't. And a number of those are scholars around the world in fields like cartography, Uh, medieval manuscripts, paleography, which is the study of handwriting in the medieval period, who take more of a wait-and-see approach. Let's look at this for ourselves. Let's evaluate this. And there are others who just plain out think it's a fake. So it becomes clear that while general readers of the newspaper may accept this, there are many scholars in different fields around the world who aren't necessarily willing to accept it at face value. And they begin to talk to each other, and they begin to talk to Yale, and eventually it becomes clear that there needs to be a meeting. And so there's an, uh, a meeting of international scholars at the Smithsonian in Washington in 1966. Opinion is split. Some people are absolutely ready to accept this map as the first visual evidence of European exploration of the New World before Columbus. Others take a wait-and-see approach and say, well, let's keep the juries out. We want to see more evidence. Others think this is flat-out wrong and that somebody's pulled the wool over Yale's eyes. We turn our attention to a blown-up picture of the map displayed on the wall. We thought it was important in this exhibition to explain that there are reasons within the humanities and reasons within the sciences that people will sometimes challenge things. And so what you see here is several of the reasons that people have challenged the map just based on its appearance, not on any kind of testing, just based on how it looks. So for example, on the map in the top left-hand corner, you see a very accurate representation of what Greenland looks like. It shows up as an island, and we've put a satellite image of Greenland right next to that, so you can see how close the map's representation of Greenland is. In truth, Greenland was not fully circumnavigated until about 1890. So we did not necessarily know that it wasn't connected to a continent until then. That was one of the things that people looked at this immediately and said, well, that seems a little bit suspicious. Something else that's unusual about the map is that it doesn't quite conform to any medieval cartographic projection. When you're projecting a spherical globe onto a flat surface like a map, it starts to become distorted. And there are many different ways that we project the world onto a flat surface. The Vinland map doesn't necessarily fit into any of those boxes, and people picked up on that. Also, it lacks all cartographic tools like a frame, a legend, a scale, a meridian, 
a compass, it's somewhat crude in comparison to other medieval maps. We're going to walk into what we call the manuscript room, and here you get to see the manuscripts that we've been talking about this whole time. We can walk you over to the Venom map. We walk into a dimly lit room displaying numerous ancient documents, including several other contemporary medieval maps, and finally, the Vinland map itself. My first impression of the map was just how small it was. After all the protests, the burning of effigies, the fights between historians, was all this fuss really about this faded map that's the size of a page in a book? And I call what you're feeling right now, I call it the Mona Lisa effect. Because as we bring people through this whole story, the map grows and grows and grows in your imagination until you come to the real thing and see that really you could tuck it under your arm without any trouble. It's a surprisingly small document for something that's caused so much controversy. It's also very faded. We know from carbon dating the parchment that this is a circa 1430s or 40s piece of parchment uh, from a cow. And at the same time, there are parts of this map that just don't feel right. One thing I want to point out to you is how small the writing is on this map. I mean, can you even see the legends? They're minuscule. And one thing that Ray Clemens, the curator of manuscripts at the Beinecke Library, will tell you is that right there is a red flag that something here isn't right. People in the medieval period did not write that small if they didn't have to, because it's really hard to do, and other people can't read it. The map is supposed to be functional, so you want it to be functional. Somebody went to great pains to make the legends on this map extremely small. says here, origin unknown, date early to mid-20th century. So at this point, visitors will realize that someone got duped. Well, they're going to start asking questions at that point. Here's where we should talk about the sciences, because the chorus of scholars who question the Vinland map, who want it to be further studied, never goes away. And Yale really goes to efforts to satisfy that conversation. Alexander Vitor in particular, who's a curator of maps at Yale, uh, is interested in finding out as much about the map as we can. And so working with the university, they agree to allow the map to be tested by scientists. And that begins in the early 1970s. That also is what breaks this story wide open, because the first major scientific report to come back on the map in 1974 demonstrates that the ink contains an ingredient that certainly was not in this form in the medieval period. It's called anatase. It's a form of titanium dioxide uh, that exists in nature, but was only refined beginning about 1920. And in the Vinland Maps ink, there is refined anatase, suggesting that somebody took perhaps medieval parchment and drew a map on it at some point after 1920. That caused a lot more headlines, as you can imagine. But Yale, to their credit, accepted those findings in 1974. They released uh, a statement saying, we accepted the Vinland map as a forgery. And I think many people would expect that the story ends there. But it just keeps going. And what one generation of scientists found in 1974 has been challenged over and over again by successive generations of people at different labs, in using different techniques and different tools, who want to take issue with those findings or who find uh, different results. And so the scientific conversation really only began in the early 1970s and has kept going strong straight through the present. In fact, partly in anticipation of our exhibition, 
Yale began new testing just this spring on the Vinland map and its related manuscripts, and we won't know the full results of those tests until at least later this year. Today, a vast majority of scholars accept that the Vinland map is a modern forgery. At the same time, there will always be people who want to believe in the map's history. And this is why we have found this to be such a fascinating case study for human nature. The fact that we can be looking so much evidence in the face and stick to our own truths, and that we often bring different sets of facts to the table. It's a, it's a story that I think resonates with our current conversation in this country. And so we see this as an opportunity to help our visitors understand that this kind of dynamic where people will disagree over the very basic facts of a case has actually been going on for decades, if not centuries, in this country. At the same time, there is so much we don't know about this map. Even if we think that it came from the 20th century, we don't know who made it. And most interestingly to me, we don't know why somebody made it. What was their motive? Why did they go through all this trouble? someone go through all that trouble to fool the world about this so-called Vinland map. It certainly caused debate among top researchers and scholars. At the end of the day, was it satisfying to fool them? The exhibit at Mystic Seaport is open through September 30th. Now running alongside this exhibit is a fascinating look into the world of the Vikings. Coming up, we'll hear from the director of the Uppsala University Museum about Vikings Begin and why the Swedish Museum allowed Mystic Seaport to be the first stop on the exhibit's international tour. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel, and this is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpithanchel. Earlier, we took you on a tour of the Vinland map exhibit at Mystic Seaport. How much do you know about the Vikings that hasn't been influenced by popular culture? Well, you now have a chance to learn more about the Norsemen and view actual Viking artifacts at another exhibit making its international debut at Mystic Seaport. For more, Marika Hedden joins us now from the studios of Swedish Public Radio. She's director of the Uppsala University Museum in Uppsala, Sweden. Mystic Seaport's The Vikings Begin exhibit is a collaboration with her museum. Marika, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Very nice to be here. So tell us about how your museum was able to obtain these Viking artifacts. Where were they discovered? Well, they were discovered in a burial field just north of our city, and uh, actually a long time ago in the 1920s, and then again in the 1950s, uh, a bigger archaeological dig was organized. So we've had these things in our collections for almost 100 years now. You said at burial sites. Describe those for us. Uh, well, uh, the burial site that some of the artifacts are from that we are on display at Mystic is actually a big field. And at first, it's it's not that easy to identify it as a burial site because it just looks like a grassy, hilly area. Uh, but someone in the 1920s identified that those small hills didn't look natural and so started to, to look for objects and was richly rewarded because it's a huge field. It has over a thousand graves. 
Uh, and most of these graves are so-called cremation graves. That is, that the deceased was put into a grave with valuable objects, uh, but then the whole grave was set on fire. And that was the most common set way of burying people all through the Viking Age. But for some reason, some graves wasn't set on fire. Some very prominent people that were buried uh, for some reason were not cremated. And that's why we have these wonderful objects that are still intact. Uh, it's only about 15 uh, boat graves that were not set fire to. Many of us have seen these uh, images in, in films and, and uh, television series where uh, the dead Viking is put into a boat that's then set on fire and pushed out into the water. Uh, and that actually has some truth to it, that boats played a very important role in the Vikings and in their mythical world. Uh, we think that these boats were probably especially built as ceremonial boats, uh, and they vary in size. They're not huge, but they are... Um, uh, between somewhere between six and twelve meters. I, I'm not sure how to translate that into into your length, uh, but uh, so they're they're not huge, but they're big enough uh, so that if they were had been used, they would have comfortably held about six to eight people. So uh, that would be a boat that's between twenty and forty feet. Uh, that uh, some of these uh, burial yeah. boats. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, of course, when these graves were found, uh, the boats were almost all gone because they had disintegrated in the earth. But in three of the graves, the earth was undisturbed. And so the archaeologists who opened these graves could make perfect depictions of what the boats would have looked like. So we actually have pretty good drawings of, uh, of these boats. And we have a, a replica of one of these boats, but only two-thirds of the actual size so that it would fit into the exhibition. When you talk about the artifacts that are part of the Vikings Begin exhibit at Mystic, can you describe some of the, the artifacts? Sure. I mean, these were artifacts that uh, the very richest people in society, both men and women, would be buried with. And the idea, of course, was to uh, prepare the deceased for a good life when they transcended into the other world. Uh, so they would have uh, weapons, and this is true both of men and women, but in the male graves there are more weapons because they were more part of the warrior culture but also household items, expensive clothing, food, uh, animals. And uh, if there was a warrior in the grave, grave, there would probably be a horse, which was an extremely expensive and valuable thing to own at the time. Uh, so the graves uh, were essentially preparing the dead for uh, a life of uh, status and wealth on the other side. Uh, when we talk about how old these artifacts are, what time period are you um, finding these artifacts from? Uh, well, this burial site was actually in use all through the Viking Age. And traditionally, uh, the Viking Age in Scandinavia is a period of about 300 years from the late 8th century up until the mid-11th century. But uh, this burial field already started to be used in the 6th century, so several hundreds of years before what we traditionally call the Viking Age. And, and so we can follow the whole transition of society 
through these graves and it was only abandoned in the very early medieval times in the uh, 13th century. Uh, so what our archaeology team has been doing is looking at objects from the graves that are from that earlier period and seeing that most of the traits of uh, what we traditionally describe as the Viking society, they're already present several hundreds of years before the Vikings started to go out on their European raids. So when we talk about the Vikings, uh, Americans here have our preconceived notions based on on uh, folklore, but also how uh, Hollywood or how entertainment has depicted Vikings in movies. Um, when we talk about Vikings, tell us more about the people we're talking about, Marika. Okay, so, you know, I wouldn't knock what Hollywood does because there are some elements of truth, actually, in, in this popular myth of, of the Vikings. And, and one important such trait is that the Viking society and the early Viking society, that really was a society centered around war and warfare, where the warrior was uh, kind of the person with the highest status in society. And there was um, a lot of myth around bravery in warfare and uh, that it was noble to die in battle. So I think that depiction of Vikings actually has some truth to it. But then, of course, they didn't have horns on their helmets. <laughs> so that is another myth. And essentially, as Every society uh, anywhere on earth at this time, uh, the Viking society was at the heart a farming society. Uh, but the farmers of the early Viking age, they also had to complement farming with um, a lot of uh, maritime economic aspects. So they, they lived of fish and seafowl. And they were also much more active in trade than we have previously realized. So they traveled great distances across the Baltic, but also further east, south and west, uh, already before the Viking Age proper, and they traded with the people that they met. Uh, but during uh, the time before the Viking Age proper, it doesn't seem as if uh, the early Vikings went out and raided and robbed as their later descendants would do. Rather, they were involved in, in sophisticated trade networks uh, that reached far in the world. So, so farmers at heart, but then warrior farmers, also with uh, a lot of maritime aspects to their society and uh, global trade. Marika, what does history tell us on why uh, the Vikings became intense raiders down the road? Well, traditionally, they've been described as opportunists because uh, they started raiding at a time when various parts of Europe actually experienced something of a power vacuum, that uh, the remnants of the Western Roman Empire had long fallen and there weren't really any strong centralized powers that could protect villages and monasteries along the coast. So there was simply an opportunity uh, for the Viking way of raiding, that is traveling in fast boats along the coast and then doing very quick raids and being quite brutal. Uh, but what we see in, in looking at these graves and looking at the longer perspective, we can see that the underpinnings of, of that raiding method was already there with this glorifying of the warrior society and the very skillful boatmanship 
The fact is that they probably started raiding along the same routes that their ancestors had previously traded. And the Vikings also kept on trading, so they didn't just rob and steal. Mm. It was a slave society, as many societies at this time, but the, the Viking society was most definitely a slave society. And when they went east and south and west and, and bought these wonderful items that ended up in the graves of the rich and mighty... They brought along things like fur and hunting birds, but they also brought along slaves and sold them. And one theory is that they ran out of slaves in their own countries, and so they needed to start raiding to get hold of slaves that they could then bring along to trading posts and trade for. So we're learning that the Vikings were more well-traveled and well-connected than uh, some of us uh, originally thought. How far did they trade, Barika? Well, uh, when we enter into the Viking Age, uh, we have found objects from as far as China. So, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that Vikings went to China, but they certainly went to Constantinople and probably a bit further afield uh, to trade. And uh, the way this was done was both in settlements. So they would go out and and maybe start a settlement and, and then maybe stay there until they died or after a few years pack up and go back home. Uh, but they also went on trading trips and that was very far uh, away and then back again. So they went back and forth in a way that's absolutely astounding when you think of, of the, the boats that they traveled in and the distances that they had to travel. And as you probably know, the Vikings that eventually made it to North America, they probably established some sort of settlement for a limited number of years. At least that's what archaeologists now think. Uh, so they might have packed up and, and gone back again after 10 years or so, back to Iceland then, which was where that batch of Vikings came from. This is where we live. Uh, with us from Swedish Public Radio in Uppsala, Sweden, is Marika Hedden, director of the Uppsala University Museum there. Mystic Seaport's The Vikings Begin exhibit is a collaboration with this museum. Now, Marika, when we're talking about uh, trade and the Vikings, there are some items in this exhibit that represent uh, where they traded. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, we have um, we tried to to pick a small number of objects that would tell good stories, and I think one such uh, group of objects or artifacts, very small, are the coins. So as you enter into the exhibition, the way we set it up in Mystic is you encounter coins from four parts of the world, and uh, these four parts of the world are then areas that the Vikings traded with. And interestingly, we find lots and lots of coins in their graves, but they didn't have a monetary society. So to them, the coins were only interesting uh, because of the value of the metal that they held. So for example, the four uh, areas then that we find are the Byzantine Empire, which is the, what the Eastern Roman Empire transformed into. And it's also coins from England, which uh, the Vikings, especially from the area around Uppsala, traded a lot with. Uh, and there are also uh, coins from the Frankish uh, kingdom in uh, modern-day France and Germany. Uh, and then there are coins from the Arab Caliphate. So 
coins from these four parts of the world uh, all made their way into these graves in north of Uppsala, which I think is quite remarkable. Marika, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, and I wanted to find out what your researchers have discovered about gender in Viking culture, specifically the role of women. Yes, uh, I think uh, we're very proud to have one of the researchers in the group, uh, Charlotte Hedenstjärna Jonsson. She made headlines a couple of years ago because she was the the lead uh, author of uh, an article uh, about the warrior woman that was found uh, in a Viking grave outside of Stockholm. And actually this grave had been well known for for many years and it was usually held up as a typical male warrior grave because it had a full set of weapons with all kinds of things, swords and shields and daggers and so forth. Uh, But Charlotte and her team, they reanalyzed the human remains in the grave and discovered that it was in fact a woman. So then the question became, uh, have we misunderstood the Viking Age? Because traditionally the idea is that the men were warriors and the women stayed back and took care of the farms. Uh, Was there in fact also female warriors? Uh, And of course, this one grave uh, contains a female warrior with a very nice set of weapons. But Charlotte and her group, uh, they think that this is an exception, that women certainly knew how to use weapons and they would have to defend the farms. uh, But it's still believed that it was mostly a, a male thing to be a warrior. I think a lot of the Viking mythology Uh, that we live with today, that's an image that we was created in the 19th century, the very traditional roles between men and women. And I think that we we need to to look uh, at the Vikings in a slightly new way and and realize that both men and women would have had to be good at uh, handling weapons. That's really interesting research. Uh, on the other hand, when uh, people think of the Vikings, they think of of the culture of raiding and violence against women, also instances when women were sold into slavery. I'm just curious if you could expound on that a little bit. Yeah, well, women, but also men were sold into slavery because like uh, we talked about uh, before, slaves was actually a commodity that the Vikings could offer when they went out and, and traded in the rest of, of the world. Uh, so and this wasn't unusual. I mean, most of the societies uh, at the same time were slave societies. So the concept of human rights, for example, would have been very alien, not only to Vikings, but uh, to most people living in this Iron Age uh, society. And uh, violence against women. I'm sure that there was violence against women. I mean, that uh, was true then and uh, for most parts of society and is true today. Uh, But we don't have any evidence that the Vikings were particularly violent to women as compared to other societies. So in fact, it seems as if the women in Viking society actually had a a pretty strong role. So they weren't uh, extremely subdued. They just had slightly different roles than the male Vikings. Uh, We know history is dominated by the written record, and at least for some of their history, uh, Vikings were illiterate. So how did you go about uh, telling the history of these these people in this exhibit uh, from uh, the ability for them not being able to write about it themselves? 
Well, uh, that's a, a good observation. And of course, the brutal Viking is also an image that we have because they were described as brutal by the people who they attacked. So in order to get a more complex picture, you have to combine the written stories uh, from the people who are very negative to the Vikings uh, and then look at the rune stones where they tell their own heroic stories, but then also look at uh, Norse sagas where their mythical universe is described and combine all this with the archaeological findings. And um, through this, we get an image of, of a much more complex and sophisticated and cosmopolitan society, even if they didn't have a written language. And even if they didn't use a monetary economy, uh, they seem to have had a very uh, complex social system. Uh, they traveled, they met people, they also both settled in foreign countries themselves, but also uh, invited other people to settle in Scandinavia. Uh, it was a brutal society, uh, it was a slave society, but it was also a cosmopolitan society. And, and that is what we wanted to show in this exhibition. We had a chance to see the Vikings Begin exhibit. It's beautifully done. And for our listeners who want to venture over to Mystic Seaport, what's the one takeaway? What do you hope that they get from this exhibit, Marika? Uh, well, I hope that they, they get a feeling that I also have gotten from looking at all of these objects. Of th This is a a magical world, uh, uh, quite elusive, uh, but surprisingly sophisticated. Uh, and uh, a lot of the things that uh, the Vikings manufactured and collected are really beautiful. So it's also um, an experience, I hope, of, of the beauty of the Viking society. Marika Hedden, again, director of the Uppsala University Museum in Sweden. Mystic Seaport's The Vikings Begin exhibit is a collaboration with this museum in Sweden. It features artifacts dating as far back as the 7th century, including helmets, shields, and weapons. And the show, which made its international debut at Mystic Seaport, runs until September 30th. Marika, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to Katie Tolarski, Lydia Brown, Nicholas Bell, Marika Hedden, Dan McFadden, and Alyssa Bass. You can learn more about our show at wmpr.org slash where we live. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.